This is Young Lawyer Rising from the ABA Young Lawyers Division and Legal Talk Network. As always, I'm your host, Montana Funk. Attorney, activist, and author of both The Addicted Lawyer and The Ambulance Chaser, Brian Cuban, joins us today to discuss his journey through addiction and recovery and offers insight to young law students and attorneys who may be struggling with similar challenges. Thank you listeners so much for tuning in today. Good afternoon, Brian. How are you doing, Montana? I'm great. Thank you so much for joining today. I I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. I mean, this is a super important topic and I kind of want to just jump right into it. But first, I think it's important. Obviously, we're talking about addiction today and recovery and, you know, that whole the whole process. And that's clearly something that affects a lot of people. And I want you to tell the listeners, why is that an important topic to you? Well, I'm in recovery from uh, alcohol and cocaine addiction, as well as an eating disorder, although we're not talking about that necessarily today. I will have 16 years in long term recovery come this April. And thank you. And I struggled with it, alcohol in law school. I added cocaine to the mix uh, as a lawyer, and it certainly had a negative impact on my ability to practice law competently and ethically. So I think it's important for both lawyers and law students to understand where it can take us and the things we can do to deal with it, both for ourselves and when we have family members or friends or children who may be struggling. Because the practice of law isn't just doesn't just happen in a vacuum. No, exactly. And I think what's really important about your story, too, is it didn't just start in your career. It actually started before when you were in law school. And that was, you know, one of the topics I really wanted to talk about was, do you think this is just a problem that attorneys see when they're starting their career and clearly not? And why do you think it starts even as early as law school? Well, we have to remember that everyone walking through the doors of for me, it was pit law for the first time. They're more than that, right? They are the accumulation of snapshots of the, their entire life up to that point, their young life at that point. And so those snapshots could be snapshots of trauma. They could be snapshots of pain, of joy, of all the things we go through. And there's a saying called the body keeps the score. And the body has already started keeping the score when you, when people walk through the doors of their law school. So Somebody may already be struggling. Somebody may be on the cusp where the stress of law school, whatever they go through in the law school experience, can push them over the line, can tilt them over. So it's not just that. It's not just, oh, stress triggers, boom, I'm an alcoholic. Stress triggers, boom, I'm using, you know, I'm misusing Adderall. I'm using cocaine or this or that, opioids. There are a lot of environmental, genetic, and social factors that can come into play and often do. Absolutely. And I I want to make sure that our listeners too aren't, you know, let's say there's someone who wants to go to law school, right? It might not be someone who's actually in law school yet. And it's important for, I think, everyone to know that even if you're having these stressors before deciding to go to law school, or, you know, you, you recognize that you have some trauma in your life, which you said, you know, can cause that, It's not a deterrent, I don't want people to think, from going to law school. And what advice would you have for people who are sitting here listening, thinking, oh, man, I'm already really stressed and I haven't, you know. That's a great point. And I I wouldn't use the word deterrent, but I think if someone wants to optimize their law school experience, and I wish I had, you should really take stock of where you are. And because, especially at a young age, I mean, I'm old, so I use that as young, (laughs) 
you know, you might not even want to face those things, right? You know, we've, uh, people have been through many things in the home or with their friends or they're bullied or this or that, and they don't even want to face those. They don't want to face those. That's not unusual. So you walk into the stressful law school experience and all of a sudden, uh, the stress is bringing those things to the surface. So, well, it shouldn't be a deterrent. I think it's important to, you know, the best you can with whatever self-awareness you have at that point, take stock of what's going on in your life, because that can impact the quality of your law school experience. Now, you walk through the door and the law schools are much better situated to help with those things than they were in my day. When I was at Pitt Law, we didn't have a dean of students. And now a lot of times uh, the deans of students are the, you know, the first line of I'm struggling if you feel comfortable. I know a lot of students, a lot of law students don't. And at some law schools, I won't name them. There's good reason for that. But it's a much more complex issue than just, you know, walking through the door. Yeah. And I think, you know, people, like you said, might not want to address these issues, right? They might not want to, whether it be because the stigma that's unfortunately surrounding it or that they don't know what resources are out there. And I think it would really help our listeners to hear why, you know, you took those steps to get help and get on the sober path. And, you know, that you overcame what a lot of people probably experience is fear to admit they need help. Sure. And you have to remember, just keeping it back at the law school period, I walked into I walked into pit law and I walked out of pit law as an alcoholic, alcohol use disorder. And as you might imagine, I mean, I was near the bottom of my class, right? I still have I still have nightmares about going to get my diploma and the dean of the law school going, psych, you didn't graduate. And the funny thing about that, Montana, was I was so ashamed of myself, I didn't even bother going to graduation. Just oh, mail it to sad. me. Yeah, but you know what? The great thing about that is two years ago it came full circle and I yeah. keynoted the pit law commencement. Oh, as no way. having That's turned awesome. my life to, around and I wore the cap and gown for the first time. So that okay, was cool. Good. <laughs> so I walked out of law school. I kicked the can, right? I call it the kick the can syndrome to the practice of law, deal with it in the practice of law. And that resulted in uh, adding cocaine. I added cocaine to the mixture, failed the bar exam three times. The first time I took the Texas bar exam, my study aides the weekend before the exam and a roach-infested motel were three and a half ounces of cocaine, affectionately known as an eight ball, a fifth of Jack Daniels, a liter of tab, and Barbie review books I'd borrowed that weekend. So (laughs) drugs and alcohol, I failed, as you might imagine, drugs and alcohol had a significant impact on my ability to study and pass the bar exam. Mm -hmm. We had a DWI arrest. We had uh, deciding to end my life by suicide in 2005. Fortunately, that did not occur. I had people in my life who cared about me and intervened, three failed marriages, drugs and alcohol impacted all of that. And so there were all these things trying to practice law in the, in the interim, right? Trying mm-hmm. to make money. I was doing cocaine in the state courthouse, in the federal courthouse bathrooms. I was, I remember specifically uh, the very last bench trial I ever did. Uh, I wasn't ready and I panicked, pulled over the side of the road and snorted cocaine off the back of my hand. So, and I was unethical. I was absolutely unethical because I was willing to do everything and anything to take in the funds I needed to get my drugs and alcohol and sustain that lifestyle. Mm -hmm. So these things tend not to work out well, right? And it finally got to the point Easter weekend, 2007, after my second trip to a psychiatric facility, 
where uh, I'd had a two-day uh, drug and alcohol-induced blackout where my girlfriend at the time, now my wife, we survived it and we've been together now over 17 years, came in and found me passed out. She knew nothing about my issues. So we'd only been living together for, you know, a month maybe. Mm-hmm. And standing in the parking lot of the psychiatric facility for the second time, a few things occurred to me. And this was Easter weekend, 2007. One, she's going to leave me. She, I would. She didn't. She stood by me while I rebuilt the broken trust and found recovery. Two, uh, there wouldn't be a third trip back. I'd be dead. And three, I thought about something my father used to say to my two brothers and I. I am a middle child. Mm-hmm. My father was a middle child like me. My father, who was a uh, fought, was a CB, fought, fought in the Pacific in World War II, fought in Korea. And he wow. ran what is called a trim shop in Pittsburgh, uh, where they reupholster car seats, put on convertible tops, a middle-class privilege bringing, right? I don't want to say there wasn't privilege, but it was middle-class. And I think it's important to acknowledge the privilege in my addiction and in my recovery. And so I thought about something he said to us growing up, Montana. He said, guys, wherever you go in life, wherever your journey takes you, call your brothers, tell your brothers you love them, make sure your brother's okay. These are the, this was the relationship he had with his brothers that his father had instilled in him, the gift of family. And I thought about that in that parking lot. And if you want to know how that gift has stuck, all these decades later, having grown up in Pittsburgh, I live in Dallas now, my two brothers and I live walking distance to each other. And my father, until he passed away, lived literally across the street from me. And I wasn't ready to lose my family. Why then and not in the summer of 2005 when my brothers came into my room with a 45 automatic on my nightstand? I don't know. If we could figure that out, we'd win a Nobel Prize, right? What (laughs) motivates people into recovery? But that was what I call my quote-unquote rock bottom, although I hate that term. I prefer my recovery tipping point where I decided it was time to move forward. Yeah. No, I think that that's really important is having a support system, whether it be family, like you said, I come from a big Italian family. Mm -hmm. So that's the same with us is family is so important. Cousins are like siblings, you know, and that's a privilege. Yeah, it is. And that is absolutely a privilege. So many Mm -hmm. people, you know, don't have that. They don't have that, whether somebody, maybe it's law school or, you know, the addiction is wider than the legal profession, although we suffer at a rate twice the general public. And you know, we are a profession in crisis and it got worse during the pandemic. But uh, yeah, that is absolutely a privilege to have family, you know, willing to intervene. When it absolutely. may be a financial privilege. It is a love privilege. It is a closeness privilege. Many don't have that. Absolutely. And I think this is a good segue. I want to take a quick break. But when I get back, I think it's really important to talk about support systems across the board. So we're going to take a quick break, listen to a message. When we come back, we can talk about some support systems. It can be frustrating to wade through the malpractice insurance application process but you know you need to protect your firm. Alps designed their application to be flexible, easy, and 100% online. Fill it out, review your quote, accept, and pay in as little as 10 minutes. Alps is the nation's largest direct writer of lawyers' malpractice insurance, and they are endorsed by more bar associations than any other carrier, so they understand law firms. They also know how valuable your time is. 
And that's why they make legal malpractice insurance easy. Visit alpsinsurance.com to learn more. That's A-L-P-S insurance.com. Delegate out those tasks that take up your time. Staffy can help you with your legal, administrative, marketing, and even client-facing workload. Hiring Staffy's top-notch bilingual virtual staff means Staffy does the recruiting, hiring, and training for you. Then, if you need a change, Staffy handles it. You get to concentrate on your strategic work. Schedule a free consultation at staffy.cc. That's S-T-A-F-I dot C-C. And get $500 off with code HAPPY24. So before the break, we were talking, Brian, about support systems and how not everyone has the privilege of having, you know, a really close family or friend base. So I think it's important for our listeners to know and for law schools and law firms who are listening, what kind of support that they can give. You know, if it's outside family and friends, what resources are there and what support is there that people who may be struggling can can turn towards? Law schools and providing support structures and providing resources have come a long way from my time at Pitt Law. When I walked out of the doors of Pitt Law in uh, the fall of 1986, I mean, we were having keggers in the student lounge, right? You didn't have the awareness that you had today. And so deans of, now we have deans of students and the people listening to this may have their different viewpoints on whatever their law school is. The experience is gonna vary. But I've interacted with many deans of students who are very well versed in the resources available, uh, whether it's students in recovery, whether it's the 12-step groups, whether it's legal-focused 12-step groups, and also on things that are not quite 12-step focused. And it's a much different environment. Nowadays, especially in larger, uh, larger universities where a law school is part of that, we have student recovery groups, right? where uh, law students can find other people in recovery. And that's what I, excuse me, my voice crap. <laughs> that's okay. If I was taking singing lessons, I'm taking singing lessons too <laughs> to work on vulnerability. And uh, that would be a good thing if my voice cracked. Yeah, very good. Because it shows that you're stretching. But uh, nowadays, it's very important for a student who may be struggling with depression or may already be in recovery I would say the first thing you do when you walk through those doors, because everything else is dependent on this, your success, is figure out what the resources are. Go straight to your dean of students and let them know you're in recovery. It is not going, they are not going to rat you out to the state bar uh, or, you know, the board of law examiners or whatever whatever state you're in, jurisdiction, they're not going to rat you out. I know there is a stigma. But you really need to figure out what the resources are to have your recovery zone and figure out your mental health wellness zone. What are the recovery groups? I'm in counseling. What are the counseling resources? Does my law school have their own counselor? How do I take advantage of that? Where can I go? Who are the students in recovery who are willing to, you know, who are recovering out loud? Should I connect with them? And just walking through the door, you may not know that. And the dean of students would be the person who knows, unless you already knew someone else in recovery. When I walked at Pitt Law, unless you were uh, back then, it's different now, obviously, 
Uh, yeah. Pitt Law does very well in terms of their support for students mm-hmm. who are in recovery or currently dealing with substance use. But back then, I mean, if you didn't know someone already in the rooms or in 12-step, uh, and for those who don't know, when I say 12-step, the most well-known is AA, but there are mm-hmm. others. You, you were either not in recovery and you're just white-knuckling it. But that is just not the case today, and there is no reason not to take away, not to reach out to those resources. Well, a law student listening to me says, well, there is a reason. If I go to the dean of students, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm screwed, right? It's going to get to, I get out to put it on my application to take the bar and this and that. No, deans, it is confidential. Whether you, whether you have to put it on your application, it's going to depend on what the application asks. And unfortunately, yeah. that has nothing to do with going to the dean of students and getting the resources you need to have a successful law school stay over three years. Absolutely. So that's a whole different subject, right? Whether yeah. jurisdictions are asking questions they shouldn't ask. So, you know, you have to drop that barrier of, of projection of, you know, of fear and take that first step and allow yourself to be given the resources if you don't want to find them yourselves. And the second thing I tell law students is try to resist kicking the can. They kick the can syndrome through three years. I'm not going to deal with it now because I'll have to put it on the bar exam application. I'll have to do that. I'll kick the can down to the practice of law. So you walk out the door of someone with a pro, as a light problem drinker in law school, become a moderate problem drinker in, in, the, in the practice of law, maybe add some other substance, and all of a sudden, you know, you're really dealing with problems. So we walk into a profession where we have a alcohol use disorder rate at over 20%, according to the Betty Ford Hazelton ABA study. Mm-hmm. And that is twice over twice the general public. If you're a, I use the term millennial to put the age group there, millennial lawyer, that goes to over 30%. And we know during the pandemic for female lawyers, it jumped dramatically in terms of alcohol use disorder. So this is not imaginary. You walk into the practice of law and you need those resources just as much as you need them in law school. Fortunately, we have more awareness than we did before especially if you're going into big law. There is, uh, we have the ABA wellness pledge that so many law firms, so many government agencies, corporate counsel, and so many different entities have signed on to, right? And they have pledged, they're they're at least going to put these structures in place. And now we can debate whether those are the right structures. We can debate whether that's actually been implemented in a way that allows people to actually break through fear and come forward to break through the fear of not making partner, to break through the fear of this and that. That, that again, that's a debatable issue and, and people do debate it. But we know there are structures in place. We know lawyers' assistance programs are getting better funding. We know lawyers' assistance programs are getting into law schools more. We know lawyers' assistance programs are now doing more than just spitting out statistics while students drool on their desk like Ferris Bueller, right? They are bringing in people to tell stories. We know more lawyers are recovering out loud. When you go out into the practice of law, if this is on your mind, these things, addiction, and where do I stand in this as I try to stay in recovery or I think about recovery, 
Listen to these stories. Storytelling is so important because facts just numb our mind, right? The data numbs our mind. Listen to the stories of people just like you. Yeah. And it's important to notice that, you know, you aren't alone and there's a lot more people struggling than you think there are. And, you know, it's it's not an embarrassing thing to reach out for help or want to talk to people. Well, I'd like to pull back from that. It is an embarrassing thing, yeah. but that's okay, right? I, would I try not, I don't tell someone, don't be embarrassed. Well, if you're embarrassed, you're embarrassed. That's a normal human reaction mm-hmm. to be embarrassed or to be ashamed or, so I don't want to, dis, I don't want to uh, delegitimize anyone's feelings Yeah. by saying it's not an embarrassing thing. If you're embarrassed, then it's an embarrassing thing. <laughs> but what are you going to do next? Okay, I'm embarrassed. What am I going to do with that? Right? Am I going to stay static and succumb to what I call the Peter principle of addiction in the legal profession, where we start out at our best performance, giving a dollar for a dollar, right? Hourly rate. And then all of a sudden it's 75 cents for a dollar. And all of a sudden it's 50%, 50 cents for a dollar. All of a sudden it's a quarter for a dollar. And all of a sudden we've been reported to the state bar or we've been <laughs> fired or commit malpractice. The Peter principle is theoretically, as we know, we work up to our level of incompetence. We learn more to rise above that and the level keeps, we want to increase, keep increasing our level of incompetence that we work up to. So we keep yeah. advancing in the organization. But with the Peter principle of addiction, what happens is that level keeps dropping and dropping and dropping. And we keep kneeling and kneeling and kneeling. I did this so I could tell myself I am giving, still giving a dollar for a dollar and putting in the full work for a day. And eventually you're in uh, what is unfortunately called the pages of shame in the back of the bar journal, right? Where we all flip through to see if there's anyone we know who's been censured or disbarred <laughs> and, uh, Unfortunately, I've seen my friends and, uh, you know, in the back of there, disbarred and censured, and a very high percentage of those correlate to substance use. So how can we keep from getting there? Well, don't Mm -hmm. succumb to the Peter principle of addiction. Get that help. Take advantage of those structures at the highest possible place. And that's hard to tell somebody walking out the door at law school or 23 or 24 who has their whole life in front of them, who maybe think can function at a higher level, you know, while they're still struggling. That, that's a hard conversation. Ah, I'm good. You're just an old man. You don't know. I'm good. You don't know. Okay. But I still want you to hear it. Listen to stories of people your age. Listen to stories of people just like you. Because they're being told now in greater amounts than at any time in the history of law. Yeah. How do you think people outside of law school, like friends and family can help someone that they know is struggling? And what signs can they look for in someone to notice that struggle? Well, the signs are going to be the signs for for anyone, right? It's all going to be on what information you're getting. So you have to ask questions. And I am not a therapist. So I try to be very careful. The only thing I'm an expert in is my journey. That's it. Mm -hmm. Don't have any degree, but the two, the JD, right? (laughs) And, uh, and that's not a real doctor. <laughs> hey, but, no, I'm just yeah, kidding. <laughs> yeah. But uh, learn is if, if you suspect something, uh, grades are dropping. If you're getting that information even, ask how, how are you doing in school? How are your grades? And ask in a non-judgmental way. How are things going? Ask all the things you want to know as a parent. And if you have any inkling, 
There are experts in that, right? There, it's not like we have an internet now. Back in my day, there was no internet. There are plenty of things. How to tell if your child may have a substance use problem? What are the signs to look for? So I'm not going to go through a litany of signs because mm-hmm. I would just be regurgitating what you can type in a Google search for and get a lot more information. But do that search and learn the proper questions to ask that are non-judgmental, non-challenging. And if you believe there is a problem, once again, there are plenty of experts out there who can tell you what to do. I am not one of them. I can tell you that my parents had no clue, none. Mm -hmm. Why? Well, I went to Penn State. I was only home for a period of time. And this is an unusual story, especially if you don't take a gap year, right? You go to college, you come home for the summer, you go straight to law school, you may not be living at home. So how would the parents even know? Next thing you know, you have your job, you're moving, you're doing this, you have your own place. So there not may be these, there may be fewer moments of opportunity than when the, when the person was in the home. Mm-hmm. It becomes easier to hide. I can see, you know, that's very real when someone's not home during the year. And I think, you know, let's say there's a listener listening right now who their family member has come out with this problem, right? And has experienced this and they know that. Speaking from your personal experience, you said obviously your wife found you and then stuck by you. And what was it that she did for you personally that just really helped you recognize like, okay, no, I want, I want to do this for myself, for her, for my family. She said, if you, if there's going to be an us, you need to deal with you. Mm-hmm. That, that was my motivator. Yeah, no, that's, that's fair. I appreciate that you're opening up about that. So thank you. And you, but you have to remember too, for law students, for parents and everything, one of the big challenge also becomes my child is struggling. What is more important, law school or my child? A child, right? So these decisions sometimes have to be made. And that can be so tough. You're in, especially for, if I tell my parents, they're going to make me drop out. If I tell my parents, they're going to want me to go to treatment and I want to graduate with my class. If I tell my parents, then it's the snowball has started down the hill to having to disclose this to the bar. And so they don't, so they just suffer in silence. And, you know, that's just such a, difficult conversation. I get it. And that's why if you're a parent, get online. Other parents have had their convert this conversation with their law student children. Mm-hmm. You're not the first one to have had it. It doesn't make it easier, but these kind of judgments have to be made. And this is where maybe the parent reaches out to the dean of students. What can I do? What can I do? And the dean of students may already be aware. It doesn't mean the dean of students is going to rat out the child, Right. But the dean of students has prob- might have seen this before. I talk to dean of students all the time who have come, had these come to, you know, hard conversations with law students. You know, is your life or struggling through law school more important? And the students have dropped out. I know students who have dropped out, gone back and had wonderful careers in the legal profession. Dropped out, gone to recovery, taken a year, and the law schools have been fine with that. Taken the year, and they are now flourishing. They are now flourishing. And the reaction that I'm ashamed, I'm ashamed, I'm ashamed. I can't, it's shameful. Everyone's going to know. Well, you can't worry about what everyone knows. What you you have control over is what you do. 
How are you going to move forward? And yeah, okay, you're ashamed. And, you know, the conversation isn't whether you should feel ashamed. The conversation, because like we said, you do. That, that's mm-hmm. what it is. The conversation is how do we move forward? Whatever you feel. Absolutely. I have two more questions for you, and at least one of them will be easy, I think. So I'll start with the harder of the two. If you could go back in time before, you know, your your whole journey with this started and tell yourself one piece of advice before law school, what would you say? Other than uh, don't don't snort that blow. (laughs) Other than that, other than that, that's too easy of an answer. (laughs) I would tell myself to do whatever needs to be done done to learn how to love yourself standing naked in the mirror. I like that. I think everyone can use that advice. Thank you. That's awesome. Because it is that reflection that often drives people to find other ways to love themselves. Yeah. No, I love that. I think that's a great piece of advice that all the listeners should take. So now for the easy question, I want you to tell the listeners where else they can find you. Obviously, you're an author of some books. So just tell our listeners where else besides, obviously, this podcast, they can find you. You can find me at www.briancuban.com, where I uh, put up a lot of video, videos on addiction and stuff. You can, I also write a column for Above the Law called The Addicted Lawyer. I've written a book called The Addicted Lawyer, where you can read stories from other law students uh, and other people who have struggled. I said people telling their stories. And also, I just, uh, I wrote my first novel. It's won a couple of awards, and it's called uh, The Ambulance Chaser. It's set in Pittsburgh, where I grew up, and it's about a lawyer uh, struggling with addiction who finds himself accused of the murder of a one-time high school classmate, and he goes on the run to find the one person who can prove his innocence. I was just reading about that before uh, we jumped on here, and it looks super interesting, so. Yeah, it's a light read. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's not going to win a Pulitzer, but it's a fun, quick read. <laughs> I like how you're like, it's a light read. It's about murder, but like a light yeah, read for sure. Yeah. And for those wondering, <laughs> well, no, I haven't, I haven't murdered anyone. At least that we know of, right? At, at least that they I, at least that that I'm know. winking at you. It's not, autobio- <laughs> it's not autobiographical on that level. Perfect. That's good. That's good. Well, Brian, thank you so much for joining today. I really appreciate how open you were about this topic and just the conversation is so important. And like you said, people just need to hear other people's stories. So thank you so much. Can I leave you with one statement? I'd love that. Yeah. Whether you're a law student or a friend or a mother or a sibling or a spouse, whatever it is, the only prerequisite to recovery is being above ground. That's it. Mm -hmm. There's nothing else. Not you have to want it, not this, that. Just be above ground and fight fight to stay above ground and find recovery. That's really, really eye-opening. I think when people hear that, they're... Yeah, that's exactly it, right? Just just fight for it and just, like you said, just be above ground, fight for it. Listen to the people's stories. Do all you can. Look at yourself naked in the mirror and love yourself. And do all you can for your friends and loved ones too because yeah. support is important. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. I Like I said, I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. So listeners, you know the drill. We'll be right back with Julie to talk about Pop Law. This episode is brought to you by the American Bar Association's Young Lawyers Division. Starting a new career in the law can feel overwhelming. The ABA YLD provides resources, CLE, and a network of peers from coast to coast to help you settle into your new legal career. 
Claim your Young Lawyer membership for just $75 at ambar.org join. Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures, all critical parts of the litigation process, yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software? InfoTrack automates data entry, document selection, tracking, and information syncing across all these core tasks and more by integrating with your core systems like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at infotrack.com simple. Welcome back. Now we're going to talk to Julie. Julie, I hear you have some news about crypto, NFTs, stuff that is very foreign to me, but it sounds like you got some stuff for us. It's a little foreign to me too, but (laughs) hi, I'm your host, Julie Marrow. Welcome to Pop Law, where pop culture meets the law. How are you today, Montana? I am good. I'm excited to to hear about this NFT stuff. I know that it's pretty big and I, I probably am going to sound pretty uneducated because I don't understand them, but I know there's pictures or something. Yeah, there's pictures and they're worth a lot of money. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it, it it is strange. And we don't really have to, you don't have to understand too much of the intricacies of NFTs and <laughs> crypto um, for this to still be interesting. But yeah, I mean, we've basically placed this immense amount of value on different, it's like digital art or mm-hmm. currency. And, but it's, it's one of those, I think of it all as like in what beauty's in the eye of the beholder or, or like the value of the person who has it because it's just like, well, stuff is worth as much as someone will pay for it. Well, exactly. And art is just like that, right? Different forms of expression and the person, like you said, beauty's in the eye of the beholder. So Definitely. It's interesting. Yeah. So we're looking at probably the last seven, six years, crypto and the NFTs have really taken off and you hear them in the news a lot, but that's part of the issue. How we're sitting here, I think we're pretty in tune with most things going on in the world Mm -hmm. and still so many questions. And just, I think crypto and, and the NFTs have been this sort of black cloud that no one really knows what's inside of. So back in 17, um, the SEC, not Southeastern Conference, Securities Exchange Commission, because I've mixed that up before as a sports <laughs> fan, but they uh, issued a letter. They were recognizing this, that you had a lot of people out here on their cell phones investing in these NFTs and buying crypto who really didn't understand the repercussions of that or it, in some instances truly what they were buying and why it was how it was valued and that sort of thing. And so their concern was when you started having all these celebrities um, endorsing crypto and endorsing NFTs on social media and professional athletes that you know people are going to to follow suit uh, mm-hmm. the way that they do just even if you know these people it's the same thing as politics it's like you have everyone out here politically advising you now they're financially advising you. Yeah. And so the warning was you know, to just encourage people to to make sure that all the information was fully disclosed before they made these investments and to and educate them on uh, what what disclosures were required and to make sure that they were being fully informed before 
they um, poured a lot of money in these NFTs and crypto. And if you've paid a little bit, I guess, attention, I found it sort of through sports news, but that didn't happen. And so now we have celebrities and professional athletes left and right are getting implicated implicated more, it seems, day by day almost, um, by the SEC for their promotion of um, investing in NFT and buying crypto when they knew the influence they were having on the public and on their fans and that people were going and investing in these things. And they, it's not some sort of insider trading, I wouldn't use that word, but they have more access to information, a better understanding of what these currencies and investments really do and how they work. And they also have um, typically a much more of a cushion to fall back on when their investments fall apart or if they fall apart. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, this start back in um, November was the big first class action lawsuit. It was filed against Jimmy Fallon, Justin Bieber and Serena Williams. And it was the, the most, maybe you've seen it, it's a board ape yacht club. If it's an NFT and it's this ape, I had to Google it. I had heard of it, but I hadn't seen it. I didn't think. <laughs> and it's just really what it sounds like a board ape. And people poured tons of money into this, made this NFT so valuable. And now we see the NFTs and crypto and everything is sort of crumbling. And a lot of people, um, a lot of those investors lost the money that they've put into these NFTs. And um, same goes for Kim K, Floyd Mary Mayweather, um, Tom Brady and Giselle are all basically being investigated now by the SEC for their efforts in promoting and endorsing the crypto and the NFTs. And now a lot of us just sitting around at home are the ones dealing with the repercussions of that financially. So, I don't know. This is kind of the first thing. I think there will be more and more lawsuits like this personally with not just investments, but products and different things that I think this is opening a door for. Yeah. When you are somebody, whether you're truly a professional in that industry that you're promoting, but when you're a public figure, basically people are going to trust your product judgment and your investment judgment. And when you know that what you're promoting isn't really, you're not giving the full story for your benefit, then I think that they probably should be reprimanded. Yeah. It's really interesting because I I think probably a lot of them don't realize how much, I mean, they know the power they have, but they don't realize that, you know, promoting these things really is going to get tons of lay people to go out and want to purchase these things or make, you know, decisions that they may not be as educated on because they're just following the word of these celebrities. So I think it's really interesting. It's also kind of like going to be intriguing to see what else people endorse that brings up lawsuits. I'm curious to see other products, other companies, you know, this one seems a little bit different because it's involving money in terms of like crypto and huge investments. But I wonder if more lawsuits are going to come down the way for even like smaller investments. Right. And I wonder if it will make some um, companies much more cautious with what they ask people to promote in like the way that it's promoted, you know, don't, don't say X, Y, Z because it doesn't actually fall into those boxes or make sure you say that you use it and you like it for this reason and not, not, you know, just sort of taking the liability off of the, the company in a way, but then you'll have the celebrities will be running away from this contract. So 
I yeah. don't know, but but yeah, there was something a, a quote from when one of the letters that the SEC has issued. Uh, they said you're not selling sneakers; you're selling financial instruments. So I think how you said. We're not as concerned maybe of telling someone that a sunscreen is perfect and it's actually <laughs> not the best for your skin. But when you start getting into securities law and these sort of unknown investments, I'm glad that the SEC has stepped in. I think that's their job. Yeah, exactly. Try to regulate that stuff. I Protect mean, the public. I definitely also had to look up the ape pictures and they're they're interesting. I, I definitely don't think I would ever buy one because I don't know enough. But these people, Kim K and them, probably have them hanging in their house. <laughs> It's so goofy looking, but... <laughs> well, keep us posted on this one, too. I'm intrigued to see what other lawsuits come from this. Okay. Well, you have a good day, Montana. Thanks for joining me, and we'll talk to you next time. I'm Julie Marrow, and this is Pop Law. Well, listeners, as always, that's our show. I want to thank Brian Cuban for joining us today and for being so open about such an important topic. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. If you like what you heard today, as always, please recommend our show to a friend. And you know where you can find us, anywhere you listen to podcasts. Until next time, I'm Montana Funk, and you've been listening to Young Lawyer Rising, brought to you by the ABA Young Lawyers Division and the audio professionals at Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.